Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Today's episode on New Books Network welcomes Michael S. Green and his book, Lincoln and Native Americans. It was published last year in the fall of 2021. Green himself is an associate professor of history at UNLV or the University of Nevada at Las Vegas. Let's welcome Dr. Green to the show. What is your educational and personal background and also what brought you into the history field? Well, thanks for having me, Nathan. I grew up in Las Vegas, which used to make me incredibly unusual. And now I'm a little less unusual because of growth here. And I grew up, of all things, wanting to be a baseball broadcaster. And one day heard my voice recorded and thought I have to do something else. So I was going to be a newspaper reporter. I actually did work at it. And while I was doing that, I switched to being a history major. Uh, the newspaper closed, and I thought, well, you know, maybe getting a Ph.D. in history would be a nice thing, and that would fit my interests because I loved history. And I used to say I was really physically too lazy to do much else, uh, though I discovered having to carry books around, I, I built up some muscles. So I finished my bachelor's and master's degrees at UNLV, uh, then went off and got my Ph.D. at Columbia, and wound up being hired at the community college in Southern Nevada, taught there for almost 20 years, and then came over to UNLV in 2014. And well, now I get to talk to you. Oh, awesome. Uh, So your concise Lincoln Library series, what is it and how does it relate to your book that we're talking about now, which is Lincoln and Native American? Well, I think it's kind of a cute story because Southern Illinois University Press, and as you might expect in Illinois, they have an interest in Lincoln. Uh, The editor there is Sylvia Rodrigue, who in fact used to be uh, in your state. She was the editor at the LSU Press, and uh, she's there now. And she and a couple of other people, uh, Sarah Gabbard, who was a longtime Lincoln expert, and Richard Edelaine, a longtime Western historian who developed a late career interest in Lincoln and has been happily publishing on him since, uh, they got together and decided to start this series. And originally they said it would be called The Concise Lincoln. They were looking for short, readable, scholarly books on Lincoln and subjects related to him. And I don't know how much I influenced it, but I pointed out that Lincoln was concise. It's historians who aren't concise. So they uh, it became The Concise Lincoln Library. And I had published a book with them back in 2011, uh, Lincoln and the Election of 1860. My dissertation had been on Lincoln and the Republican Party, and so I clearly knew Civil War era, 19th century, and mostly political. But there had been a need, they felt, for a book in the series on Lincoln and Native Americans. 
and they asked if I was interested, and I certainly was, uh, partly because of just general interest, partly because I have done some work on Lincoln and the Trans-Mississippi West and hope to expand on that. So maybe I've, I've planted my flag or something uh, with this book. Uh, so it's one of about, oh, 25 books, I'm going to say, that are in the series that try to cover everything from elections to his marriage uh, to, for example, Lincoln's dealings with Horace Greeley. So uh, we've, we've tried to be concise and succeeded and been scholarly and readable, and uh, the series is pretty much coming to a close because they feel they've published about enough. Uh, so I'm, I'm happy to be in that series twice. Is it true then that your book uh, has a different point of view from other histories about Lincoln? Um, why is Lincoln for you a figure of discontent? Well, I'll try to answer both separately and together because I think the point of view that's different is that with the exception of a book about 45 years ago by a fine scholar named David Nichols uh, called Lincoln and the Indians, there really has not been uh, book-length material on Lincoln and Native Americans. And you find when you read biographies or specialized studies that they get very little attention, the subject, Native Americans, etc. And if you're studying his presidency, usually there's the story of the Dakota Sioux, and that's about it. So the point of view in this case, I guess, is more along the lines of this is something about Lincoln that a lot of people should know more about. In turn, I say this as someone who greatly admires Lincoln, this is not his most admirable subject. I think that studies of Lincoln and race have been incredibly valuable and have taken a variety of positions. And in looking at how Lincoln viewed black Americans, they did not pay much attention to where and how this might fit with Native Americans. Again, people who, I will say, had a different skin pigmentation, for lack of a better term and how they were viewed. And in this case, uh, I'm reminded of a line Alan Guelzo had in his book on the Lincoln-Douglas debates when Lincoln, uh, under pressure, finally said something that was blatantly racist by our definition, yes, and white supremacist, and it was designed to get votes. And Guelzo's comment was he then said something that everyone who loves Lincoln wishes he'd never said. And in the case of Lincoln and Native Americans, there are a few things like that. At the same time, he is unusual, in my opinion, as a 19th century political leader who, in his time, did not have or express publicly the kind of disdain or hatred that a lot of people did in terms of Native Americans. What ultimately, then, is the argument you're making in this work? And how have critics or reviewers responded after a year? Well, I think my argument is that Lincoln's view of Native Americans is complex, which should be no surprise because Lincoln was a complex figure. And that at the same time, he was better than some and not so good as we wish he could have been or that he should have been. Uh, it's a long, horrible story when we study the treatment of Native Americans uh, by especially federal officials. And 
I think that it is designed, therefore, to make the case that you know, we, we can admire certain things about Lincoln and should condemn certain things about Lincoln. And I think this book is fair, I hope it is, and tries to do both. Uh, I have heard nice comments. The major journals have not yet uh, weighed in, which I guess is normal. It usually takes a good year or so. And I am curious to see how it comes out. I will say that I read I read a lot of books, obviously. I write a good number of book reviews, and I take them seriously. But I can remember when my dissertation became a book, one reviewer said, it has a lot of new ideas, but it isn't really well written. And another review said that it really has nothing new to say, but it really is well written. So I decided that all reviewers are going to take a position, and I have to live with it. So I'll be curious to see. Yeah. So you actually have illustrations in your book, and one of these is from the New Deal's Work Project Work Progress Administration about the Sandy Creek Massacre. Also, in 2012, there is a movie, the movie's Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Um, I just do. Do you want to talk about some of those art artwork um, and how it may relate, you know, to like the Sandy Creek Massacre, for example? Well, uh, I tried. And this was with Sylvia's wise guiding hand uh, to choose photos that emphasize Native Americans. How many more photos do we need of Lincoln? We're pretty sure we know what he looked like. And it was very hard to find a lot of material that combined Lincoln and Native Americans. So uh, the old WPA photos, that sort of thing, uh, there were some contemporary photos. And uh, I want the artwork in a book I do to relate to it. I'm sure you've run into this, that there are some books you read where there's a photo section and essentially it's just showing we have photos, take a look, here it is. And it would be nice to spread them throughout the book more, but publishing details and the like uh, can make that difficult. Uh, The Sand Creek Massacre is in a way emblematic of what makes it difficult to analyze Lincoln in terms of his views of Native Americans, because he had nothing to do with it directly, and the investigation that followed really culminated when he had been assassinated and could have no say in it. But essentially, it's a group of his appointees who are behind it. A guy he sent to be the territorial governor of Colorado, uh, someone whom his War Department accepted as a commander, Colonel John Chivington. And maybe I'm thinking of Harry Truman when I say the buck stops here. And I like to think Lincoln would have looked at this and said, oh, my God, uh, this cannot stand. We have to do something about these people. Uh, But we don't know for sure. But I also think that the photo, for example, that shows the indigenous people who were connected to this helps in a sense to humanize their story. And I have to wonder if Lincoln had seen that photo, what he would have thought. I can't know. Uh, The funny thing with uh, Vampire Hunter, I did not see it, and I should have, and uh, maybe uh, this will inspire me, but I've always been careful about movies related to history, granting that Vampire Hunter is 
history, but there's a historical figure in it, but I, I don't think uh, stuff about Lincoln hunting vampires is going to creep into my lectures. Uh, but I, I have sort of a peripheral story because that's about the time that the Daniel Day-Lewis film came out. And as we were leaving the movie theater, my wife turned to the friends we'd gone to see it with and said, it must not have been too bad he only grunted once. Uh, so uh, I, I may be too picky. <laughs> yeah. What about the chronological outlook? Um, when does your timeline for this research project begin? And especially what about the years before and after the Civil War? I felt that there was a need to go back as far as we could go. And so I found some sources that have traced Lincoln's genealogy and was able to figure out that you know this great-great-great-grandfather, whatever he was, uh, was around Puritan New England just after the Pequot massacre, uh, with which the Puritans killed a great number of the members of the Pequot tribe. And this was just something I felt would be useful in part because, and this you know takes us much closer to the present, and I, in a way it's key to my argument in ways I hadn't anticipated. The most famous family story involving Native Americans involves Lincoln's father, Thomas, whose father was killed in an attack by Native Americans, and one of the people attacking was going to kidnap Thomas and his older brother shot and killed the Indian. And Thomas told that story forever and ever. And Thomas was a good storyteller. I, I think genetically speaking, however much Lincoln went back and forth on his father, he inherited the storytelling gene. And it turned out that Lincoln's uncle who shot Thomas's captor would, when he heard there were any Native Americans in the vicinity, grab his gun and go out looking to kill them. And Thomas did not inherit that, and certainly Abraham didn't. And it turned out, as I dug through this and looked at her family tree, that Lincoln's mother, Nancy Hanks Lincoln, had had a similar encounter that could have colored her views of Native Americans. It could have made her virulently anti-Indian, as Thomas could have been. And it doesn't appear to have done that. And if it did, they didn't really pass it on to their son. And I just find that kind of interesting. It, it speaks to Lincoln's humanity in a sense, that even when we are looking at him in connection with his views of Native Americans, we can see something that might not exist with certain other people of their time. So I go back as far as I can, and I do talk a bit about the post-war situation, I tried to keep it to Lincoln's time, if you will, the people he had appointed or was involved with. But of course, this is an incredibly complex, detailed story that I could have taken much farther forward with a longer book, and may yet. If Lincoln had outlasted his assassination, what would have changed for you, especially yeah. regarding Native American? Oh, I know. It, it is a tough one. You know, Ulysses Grant tried to pursue what he called the peace policy. And we are now seeing a bit of a renaissance on Grant where he was better on 
reconstruction and racial issues than he's gotten credit for being. I like to think Lincoln would have thought similarly, but at the same time, that then becomes tied up in the question of reconstruction and what he would have been doing about the South. And I think it is safe to say that Lincoln never would have been so ham-handed and racist as Andrew Johnson was in dealing with the freed people and Reconstruction. So if we think that that story comes out differently, it would make sense for Native Americans to do so. Here's the problem. Lincoln believed strongly in the development of the West. Like other Republicans, he supported the Transcontinental Railroad, the Homestead Act, and so on. And I end up realizing that however much we might want to bow to his humanity, that he would have looked and said, okay, what comes out ahead here? And the answer is going to be a pretty much white people's West with economic development. So I don't think the story ends up a lot better for Native Americans. It might have ended up a little better. Uh, Not for me to say uh, how I would feel about that, uh, not being Native American, but I'd like to think that, yes, things might have been a little bit better. Thinking about the Civil War's emphasis on slavery, are we missing more ideas about Native Americans during that period? How does your book approach uh, the 1860s? I do think we have missed some things. And as I'm talking to you, I'm looking over at a wonderful book by my graduate advisor, Eric Foner's The Fiery Trial. And it's the best book I've encountered on Lincoln and slavery. And there's very little in there about Native Americans, which kind of makes sense, except there was also Native American slavery, both enslavement of Native Americans and Native Americans enslaving African Americans. And I think we are increasingly seeing attention to how it was, as Megan Kate Nelson's fine book suggests, a three-cornered war. There is more than just white and black. And the issues were more than black and white. There were shades of gray. Uh, and they also involved Native Americans. And, well, you, you can extend this onward to a number of groups, immigrant groups, women, and so on. So I think that we can look more broadly at those issues, but also how did Lincoln's and his party's views of slavery and race affect or relate to how they dealt with other people. And in terms of the war itself, I mean, they they are emphasizing what is going to win the war, saving the Union. And I think we have to be fair here. Native Americans mattered less to Lincoln and to a lot of the country than those issues. So however they dealt with Native Americans was going to be connected to that. I do look at it quasi-chronologically, quasi-topically, and this is, I think, a long-standing problem for people who write about the Civil War, that if you are completely chronological, except perhaps in going through the military portion, 
then you sometimes lose sight of the topicality. So I tried to do both. And I will say that uh, the outside reader or referee for the book uh, suggested that I improve on that. And I hope I did. Lincoln's family history had a tumultuous relationship with Native Americans. Uh, Can you explain to your audience why that's so? Both of Lincoln's parents, Thomas and Nancy, had encounters with Native Americans that could have made them really anti-Indian, and that doesn't appear to have happened. But if we think of why they had these encounters, it goes back to the expansion of the United States, uh, westward migration. Both families had been along the coastline. Uh, Thomas's started in Massachusetts, Nancy's uh, in the Virginia region, and well, they head west. And now they're going into what some people would have called virgin land, except, of course, there are Native Americans living there and feeling very much encroached upon. So her Lincoln's ancestors, who were the original arrivals, ran into this in the areas where they were. And then when they move westward, much the same thing happens. Lincoln winds up uh, sort of fighting. I don't think you could call it fighting uh, in the Black Hawk War in Illinois, and we have the same thing. Uh, The Sack and the Fox have had their land taken away or encroached on, and uh, this growth and migration westward has this kind of impact and makes these relationships, uh, as, as you say, tumultuous. Abraham Lincoln's 1862 Dakota Sioux Massacre, also uprising, Can you tell your audience more about that topic? This subject is probably what gets the most attention from historians if they're going to talk about Native Americans in the Civil War. And what happened, I'll use the modern term, the supply chain was affected. The Dakota Sioux, like most such Native groups, had had treaties that they agreed to either grudgingly or hopefully and they were often ignored and they lost a lot of land and the federal government was supposed to provide allotments whatever it might be in each case but in this case food and the dakota sioux in the summer of 1862 were not getting the food they needed and uh, the native american agents representatives bureau of indian affairs officials etc in minnesota were not terribly sympathetic and finally the dakota sioux had had enough the food was apparently being hoarded, for lack of a better term, in some warehouses, and they went for the warehouses, and they killed who was in the way. And there is a lot of debate, there are a lot of questions about just how big the uprising was in terms of the effects, how many people did they kill, hard to tell how many Native Americans were killed. But ultimately, Lincoln sent John Pope, who had been in command of sort of the offshoot of the Army of the Potomac uh, and lost the big battle to Lee at Second Manassas. And he went out there and, okay, he settles things down. uh, They put down the uprising, if you will. And then Pope and the military court decide, okay, we have uh, 303 prisoners here. We'll order their execution. And Lincoln hears of this and orders them to wait 
and requests all of the files from the trials. And this is interesting because if you look at the history at the time, this is a lot more attention to the legality of the treatment of Native Americans than you find in previous administrations. Lincoln wasn't the first lawyer to be president, obviously, but he gave the files to three attorneys in the Interior Department, and he just thought ordering the execution of 303 people just like that was too much. I don't know exactly what set it off or what you'd call it, uh, whether uh, he felt uh, his toes ache or he felt itchy, but he told them to look for examples of, I guess what we would call today, war crimes. Had they done things to bodies of living women and children or dead men? And in the end, they wound up hanging 38 Dakota Sioux. And I begin my introduction with this point. The president who ordered the largest execution in American history was Abraham Lincoln by ordering the execution of the 38 Dakota Sioux. The largest commutation of death sentences at one time by a president in American history was Abraham Lincoln ordering about 265 Dakota Sioux not to be executed. And I think this speaks to the feelings on the issue that a lot of people had, Lincoln himself not being the type of person to go too far in one direction or the other. But there's a story that in 1864, he was talking with a congressman from Minnesota and said, uh, you know, my majority in Minnesota was smaller in 1864 than it was in 1860. And the congressman said, well, if you'd hanged all of them, you would have gotten more votes. And Lincoln looked at him and he said, I could not afford to hang men for votes. Well, uh, I think a lot of people are properly critical of Lincoln for hanging anyone. And I'm one of them. And I think we can also think a little more about the fact that he decided to commute death sentences. You also say that there is not a lot of information on Lincoln. Why so, and how did you find sources? What was your research process on this? Well, it's interesting because, of course, Lincoln is the most written about American. But if you look at his papers, the papers published in the 50s were about nine volumes. Now we have the legal papers that were discovered later and other things that come up. But Jefferson's papers, for example, are more than 50 volumes and they're still publishing them. So there's a lot of Lincoln's letters, writings that we don't have. And it may be there aren't a lot more, but there are also stories that his son Robert destroyed some of the writings. At any rate, I started with reading the Nichols book that I mentioned because I wanted to know what the main book on the subject had said, and then certainly researching the secondary literature, but also going through the personal papers, going through the Library of Congress collection and other collections I could find. The research, a good bit of it, was done online, which certainly has changed the historical profession. We do a lot more research online than we used to because we can, but also there happened to be a bit of a virus going around that limited mobility 
So there may have been some other things out there, but in digging and finding what I would say are uh, original materials, uh, I, I think I mined it pretty well. And then, as I say, finding, for example, the genealogy of the Lincoln family that included material on his mother that I had never seen in print before, uh, I felt like I'd really struck gold. And you know, you, you read the other books and you look at the footnotes. I don't think I'm saying anything you don't know and say, all right, well, they cite this, so I better go look at it. Or, well, they cite this publication. Let's go to newspapers.com or let's go to uh, uh, this online source or archive and see what we can find, as well as other archives I've been able to visit before COVID set in. What about these archives? Which ones and also what universities helped you most? Well, the, the Library of Congress collection of the that's called the Robert Todd Lincoln Papers, technically, uh, has a good bit of material, though not, of course, Lincoln's letters. It's mostly letters to Lincoln. And that's kind of a way to gauge what he's seeing, what he called his public opinion baths when he would meet with the public. He's getting letters and he's learning from this what people are thinking. And that was incredibly helpful. Uh, I will sing the praises of my own university because we have a wonderful liberal arts librarian named Priscilla Finley who makes sure that uh, we historian types have just about every imaginable outlet available to us as a database. So being able to go through historical newspapers and archives that were available through the library website was just great. I also spent some time at the Huntington Library. Uh, which has a wonderful collection on Lincoln, a wonderful collection on the Civil War and on the West. So uh, I, I always recommend those, and uh, I refer to the Huntington as heaven on earth. So I encourage any historian who can do so to find a way to do research there. So those were incredibly helpful. Is there a history from the Native American perspective available, whether at reservations in Illinois or any of the other places you visited? I do not know. I did not visit them. And if I were doing a longer book, which I intend to do on Lincoln and things related to this subject, I would visit. And I had to make a decision early in the process that still pains me. It is the concise Lincoln Library. And that means two things. One, it can't be a long book. It has to be concise. But the other thing is the focus has to stay on Lincoln. And I would have liked to have gone further into Native Americans themselves and their views and visited places where I think, okay, I have been to assorted places Lincoln has been and that's helpful, but I think you have to try to get to places where the people you're studying have been. Uh, in this case, I tried to keep the focus as much as possible on Lincoln or as connected to Lincoln. And I have talked with enough people and read enough to know that Native Americans have a view of him that conflicts with the view that a lot of people have because, yeah, he was connected to these massacres and he did not do for them what he could or should have done. And he has this reputation as this great emancipator and so on. And we need to dig a little deeper because uh, the reputation isn't entirely deserved. And also the commutations of executions, where did 
where did you find those records? Uh, you find them in the Bureau of Indian Affairs reports, the Library of Congress material, uh, generally uh, federal documents. And of course, that's a problem because you don't have the natives themselves giving their version. There was newspaper coverage of it, and I looked through a lot of different sources there, and I was able to find, though, yeah, they agree on the day, for example, of the execution, how people were acting, what they were doing, and I tried to convey that. Uh, so uh, it, it wasn't in this case that I thought I was plowing a lot of new ground because there are several books on the subject, and if anything, my problem was condensing that part. And you mentioned how Lincoln had received a lot of writing. What about writing from Lincoln himself? You know, there isn't a lot. He didn't talk a lot, for example, about his service in the Black Hawk War. And what he did talk about tended to make light of his military service. And he would occasionally refer to Native Americans in his writings. And sometimes he would refer to savages, which was not unusual in that period. But you also don't find him parroting, for example, what one of his generals, Phil Sheridan, said, that the only good Indian he ever met was dead. Nothing like that. Uh, there are newspaper accounts of him talking, and there are people's letters where they do it. it. This was not a subject to which he devoted a lot of attention, at least in the sources that are available to us. Uh, hard to say what's unavailable. <laughs> and borderland violence... What about the politics of these amendments to these borders? Um, you mentioned the Bureau of Indian Affairs. What other sort of politics are being implemented during this time to solve conflicts? Well, it's an interesting question because Lincoln had the attitude with his cabinet that for the most part he was going to let them run their own show. He deferred greatly, for example – to William Seward at the State Department and Salmon Chase at the Treasury. He involved himself a lot more with the War and Navy Departments because the war was the key issue. And that's where you see fights in the borderlands, violence in the borderlands. Uh, Kit Carson and uh, James Carleton, for example, with the Diné, the Navajo, and what they call the Long Walk. And it's not that Lincoln is sitting back in Washington saying, yes, make them do this or that. Uh, he appears just to have left them to their own devices while he's thinking more about places like Shiloh and Gettysburg and so on. And I think that the reservation system was already in place, and they are trying to get Native Americans in the West in particular onto reservations to clear the way for the railroad, for mining, and so on. But an example of this is that his commissioner of Indian Affairs for the Bureau, William Dole, was an old Illinois political hand. It was a patronage job. And these were politicians, and we can condemn them, and we can understand them. They're putting people they know into positions whether or not they're really qualified. How qualified was Dole? How committed was he to the good of Native Americans? Not sure of the qualifications. Some of the things he says in his reports actually are things that were said later and a little bit at the time by what we would call Indian reformers. 
uh, about uh, it being best for them to be gathered in one place where they will be safer from people encroaching on their land. Uh, we can debate that one, obviously. But they were indeed sectioning them onto the land. And I think that Native Americans who, I will say, committed violence, knowing very well why, uh, but committed violence against people moving in on their territory certainly had an impact on those decisions. And as crass as it is to say it, they didn't vote. But the people who were coming into their areas, they might vote. Had Lincoln always remained a Whig at heart, as he said, or did republicanism change him? I think republicanism changed him. I don't know how much of it was the circumstances of the war itself, but in terms of him moving to the Republican Party, the issue of slavery energized him, I think, in ways that the Whig talk of tariffs and internal improvements at one time energized him, but this even more so because it was a moral issue. And the Whig Party was dead. And he could lament that, but if we look at him as president, Whigs believed in the concept of a weak president and a strong Congress and cabinet. And I think we often overstate Lincoln's deference when he was president. There's a tendency to say, well, yeah, the, the war, he exerted a lot of control otherwise, and I just said this, he left to his cabinet to do their thing, but he stepped in when he felt it was necessary to step in, and he had no problem with doing that, and that's not very Whiggish. Republicans adopted a lot of what Whigs believed in terms of internal improvements, and that was controversial within the party because it also included former Democrats who did not believe the government should be doing this. Free trade was an issue, and these are important things. But ultimately, Lincoln joins the Republican Party. Its biggest issue is slavery. And then the question is what to do about it. And that seems to be where Lincoln certainly spent a lot of his time. Yeah. The Blackhawks uh, in Illinois, why were they so influential from for Lincoln early on? Well, the Blackhawk had started trying to get some land back, get people off their land. And Lincoln, being a young man of 23, joined the militia. And this was an opportunity for him to get to meet people, to do something that might be important or valuable. And it helps him out politically that he meets a lot of Illinoisans he's going to spend a lot of time with in his political future. He was elected the captain of his militia unit. And he said later before he was president, admittedly, that that election gave him more pleasure than any other office he'd won, that he was chosen by these people directly, and they knew him, and he won. And I think he learned some things about leadership. Uh, there are many of us who love to wax poetic about the story of the day that he was marching his men around, and they were approaching a gate, and he didn't know the command to get them through the gate. And then he said, uh, company halt, and he thought for a second, he said, the company will fall in in 10 minutes on the other side of the gate. And uh, you can make light of this, but it's sort of an example of the improvisation 
that he could engage in later, uh, the quickness of mind. And when he was captain, his men challenged him a few times. There was one occasion when an elderly Native American wandered into camp with a letter of passage. They wanted to kill him because they hadn't seen any action. And Lincoln was saying, no, 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 we cannot do this. And he ended up challenging them to fight him if uh, necessary. So I think he learned a good bit about leadership. He got a little bit of land. People who served in the Black Hawk War did get a little acreage for their service. And it was something he could actually use politically. He used it running for the legislature. And it didn't help him the first time, uh, though it didn't hurt him in the future. And he used his service to considerable effect, making fun of a presidential candidate later. Uh, who had claimed great service to the government in fighting Native Americans. So I think it meant a lot to him. And why did Lincoln back Zachary Taylor, who was part of the Mexican-American War? This is Lincoln being a politician. Uh, The Whig Party was trying to win and defeat whoever the Democrats put up. It wasn't going to be James Polk in 1848 because Polk committed to one term. And... The fact that Taylor was a national military hero would give the Whig Party a bit of an oomph, give them a little boost uh, that they had this person. And Taylor was so little known politically that Lincoln went around claiming he was going to be the perfect Whig president. He would agree to what Congress and his cabinet wanted to do. He'd be deferential to them. And, of course, Taylor got in office and was a bit different than Lincoln and other Whigs predicted. But uh, I think that in this case it was pure, for lack of a better term, uh, grassroots power politics. Lincoln loved Henry Clay, and Clay would have liked to have run again in 1848, but Lincoln and other Whigs knew that Clay wouldn't and couldn't win. So let's go with a guy who can win, and he did. There have been a number of journalists who have frequented this show and as just a topic that's come up. Um, Can you tell your audience more about news stories that you reference in your book, like the New York Tribune or the Rocky Mountain News, and how was Lincoln viewed? You know, they are what is called the first rough draft of history. We who do history, and you do this, look at newspapers for accounts of what happened. Then what we also have to do at times is remember that newspapers used to be incredibly partisan. They're still partisan. But the New York Tribune version of something that happened might differ significantly from what a Democratic paper, name one in New York, the New York World, might say. Uh, The New York Times at the time promised to be very centrist and unbiased. Well, it was fairly centrist, but not entirely unbiased. So they're very valuable. And then, of course, you have to read them with a grain of salt, just as you do a speech or a letter where people usually are giving themselves the benefit of the doubt. And these are fascinating sources. And anyone who's read them runs into the same problem that your eyes wander to the next story on the page. What? milk was three cents a gallon or whatever. It's really interesting. And you do find in there what people thought of Lincoln. And what you find is that the opposition did vilify him. They attacked him. Uh, The Republicans, it's interesting that the public loved him, I think, a lot more than his fellow politicians did. 
uh, they had a sense of him as one of them in a way that at first other Republican leaders saw him either as someone they would control or as someone they didn't really need to think much about because he came to the White House with very limited political and governmental experience, especially compared with several of the people he put in his cabinet. And you find cabinet members being critical of him, and then in most cases coming around to the point of view, wow, he really knows what he's doing. And I I think in that case, they kind of caught up with the public. Why did Chief John Ross then eventually ally with the Confederacy? Ross's story is really interesting because he wanted to be with the Union. And early in the war, and Lincoln deserves criticism for this, uh, granting that early in the war people were trying to figure out just what was going on, the U.S. government ignored Indian territory, and the Confederacy did not. There were already divisions among the Cherokee, and Ross tried for a long time. He held out, but in the end, he really had no choice. Uh, It brings to mind the line attributed to Gandhi, I must go catch up with my people because I am their leader. He's a leader, but there are other leaders applying pressure, and there are other Cherokee whose view is you know, we, we need to take a position and the Confederacy is offering to help us. So Ross is in a tough spot, and when he does eventually get to Washington and meet Lincoln, I think Lincoln is less sympathetic with his plight than he should have been. Another figure is James Carlton, uh, and he was a part of the Oots um journey and he created this unique trail of tears with the Navajo Dine. Can you tell us about Carlton and his experiences? Carlton was essentially the Union commander for the West, the far West, I should say, the Army of the Pacific. And on the one hand, when there were Native Americans at one point who just did not have enough sustenance, he and his army fed them. They provided food. They helped. But Carlton wanted to get Native Americans under control. He's part of that idea. They're in the way. And he sends Kit Carson out, and Carson obliterates a terrible number of Navajo and other groups. And they are trying to move the Navajo out of Arizona territory, where there are mines, out of any verdant or arable land, and get them into what became known as Bosque Redondo. And it was this this big plan that we're going to have this big reservation. They'll be supplied, they'll live happily, and they'll be safe from white people, but also white people will be safe from them. And he did not properly prepare. It's very similar to the Trail of Tears in so many ways. And a significant number of the Diné die along the way. And it becomes known as the Long Walk or the Navajo Trail of Tears. And it tends to get a lot less attention than the original Trail of Tears did, I think just because there were so many more Native Americans involved in the Trail of Tears. Um, Carlton does end up, in a sense, paying for it in that there are officials at the time who are questioning him. And when they see how Bosque Redondo is a total failure, they say, no, clear it out, let the Navajo go back. And uh, that's a sign for Carlton's career that he's not going any further. 
We know about the Mormons in Utah, but did Lincoln himself have any kind of special relationship with religion or spiritual sex during these events? I don't really think he did, although there were members of various churches, I have, particularly an Episcopal bishop, who were calling for Indian reform and talked to Lincoln and encouraged this. And Lincoln even said to one of them, if I get through this war, by God, I'm going to fix this. Uh, he didn't really get through the war. Would he have fixed it? That's, that's another story. You know, Lincoln's religious views have gotten a lot of attention, and he certainly invoked God, and there was a biblical cadence to his writing in certain cases, so that I don't think there's any one particular religion that he is thinking about here, but I do think religion's important to him, and he respects it. Uh, how much it influences his dealings with Native Americans, I, I don't see a lot of that, to be fair. If Lincoln's legacy had lived on in anyone else after his death, who do you think it would have been from a historian's point of view um, that essentially kept his either archival material, political beliefs, or directives um, alive? I don't know that there really is one person. I mean, his son was certainly committed to protecting his memory. And Republicans, you know, there's this famous article by David Donald getting right with Lincoln, and everybody wants to get right with him. So all parties use Lincoln. I don't know that there is one person. And part of the problem here is the uniqueness of Lincoln's administration, that it's essentially the Civil War itself, and he's never in the position, really, of being a peacetime president, just looking at the issues we deal with then. Or say, oh, he's in charge during the Panic of 1873. How does he handle the economy? And that sort of thing. It all ends up coming back to the Civil War. So it's really hard to say. It's a tough one. And I like to think Lincoln would have been trying to figure out in 1868 just who gets to be the next president. He was such a political animal that I can't imagine him not being involved in that. You described three bills from 1862, the Morrill Act, the Homestead Act, and the Pacific Railroad Act. How did they stack up for Indians, especially as Lincoln and his crew moved west? They, they don't stack up well for Native Americans. The Homestead Act is designed to create these at least 160-acre farms. Uh, the Pacific Railroad Act is going to build this line that goes through the northern tier. And uh, the Morrill Land Grant College Act, which doesn't usually get enough attention in this connection, is using federal land for building colleges and universities, and that is Native American land that they have taken. And the more Americans moving into the West, and Lincoln loves the idea and he's encouraging it, the worse it's going to be for Native Americans, because certainly Native Americans were expected to lead, follow, or get out of the way, to use an old term. They weren't going to lead. Uh, they were to follow or get out of the way, and a lot of people didn't want them even to follow. And I think had Lincoln lived, uh, this would have been a big problem for him to deal with. I, I think it would have bothered him perhaps uh, to see how they were treated, but I think in the end he would have weighed the scales and said, well, no, we have to settle the West. They have to move. Do you see any remorse for Lincoln as time went on as far as his 
personal character um, and thought process? I think he felt badly about the situation in which Native Americans lived when he thought about it or was reminded of it. When someone talked to him about it or he's reading some report or hearing of some battle, I think he felt a lot of remorse about the number of dead it took for the Union to win the Civil War, especially when he had supported the policies of really having a war of attrition. And I think that weighed heavily on him. So I think that weighed a lot more heavily than what may be going on with Native Americans at the time. Also, can you explain to the NBN audience what the tribes of Abraham were, uh, especially in the Pacific Northwest? Yeah, that that's kind of fun. So Lincoln, as president, got to make a lot of patronage appointments. And this includes postmasters, Indian agents, so things that directly affect Native Americans, things that might indirectly affect them or not affect them at all. And he was making a lot of appointments in the fairly new state of Oregon and in the Washington Territory. And he sent a lot of his old friends out there. And so the joke was that uh, the people he sent were the tribe of Abraham, which of course is a knockoff of a biblical statement. Uh, But these are people who Lincoln had known who he wants to reward for their support. So he gets them jobs. And uh, that, you might say, is the tribe of Abraham. I'll say there's one other example using his name. Lincoln, remember, was a surveyor. And he was fascinated with the plans to build the Transcontinental Railroad. And there's an old story of the engineers coming in with the plans, and Lincoln is sitting there and going over it with them and showing them how to move this here and go there. And uh, so he's saying, well, just move, go over there, go through that mountain, whatever. And uh, afterward, one of them said, you know, I always thought Muhammad moved the mountain, but it turned out it was Abraham. So if you can have fun with his name, why not? Yeah. <laughs> What other titles in this series should people look forward to reading if they're interested in Lincoln and Native Americans? Well, in terms of Native Americans, this is largely it. I think that the other books on Lincoln and Emancipation, Edna Green Medford, uh, who wrote that, uh, you, you get a sense of his racial views. Richard Striner, I believe, also wrote on Lincoln and race. Uh, I highly recommend the series. I'm not going to recommend mine. I'll recommend the series because it, it's a good, short, quick, informative read. And uh, there are some very distinguished authors in the series. Uh, I do not consider myself among them, but there are distinguished authors in the series. So I'd encourage people to do a search for Southern Illinois University Press, Concise Lincoln, and uh, go to town. And where can the NBN audience learn more about you, whether in person Uh, or online? uh, There are things about me online you may not want to learn. I don't know. Uh, Well, of course, the UNLV website, uh, our history department website, talks about me, but also my colleagues and a lot of things we do, both Lincolnian and related Native Americans and otherwise. Uh, I am supposed to speak at the next symposium on Lincoln in Springfield in February. I was actually scheduled last February when another round of COVID hit. And uh, I'll be part of the Lincoln Forum, uh, that's the plan anyway, in November at Gettysburg. 
And uh, though that is a great gathering of people who just love to study Lincoln. And if, you know, you walk down the hallway, they're having an argument or, or uh, agreeing sometimes. But uh, it's a fun place to find out more. So I'd encourage people to look for the Lincoln Forum as well. Awesome. That's great to hear. Any other lectures or seminar series? Uh, offhand, no. Things pop up, uh, especially locally. But uh, in terms of going around doing talks, uh, not too much. I mean, I'll be – I present at conferences now and then on matters that may or may not be related to this, uh, but nothing big on the horizon near as I can tell. And new research for you. What is in the works and what can your uh, listeners and audience expect from you? Well, I'm co-editing a book that would be called A Companion to Abraham Lincoln, and it's a historiographical – historiographical. <laughs> it's a tough enough word, right? Historiographical work where historians are evaluating the writing about Lincoln, and that's really more for the professional audience. I also do Las Vegas history, local history. And so I, I do work on that, um, but I am hoping to move soon into a study of Lincoln and the Far West and look at what was going on uh, in Nevada where I live, but also uh, around the West itself. Might extend it, uh, say, to the Rockies uh, because I think that there, there is a lot going on in terms of Lincoln and the West, uh, both – his own views of the West, himself as a Westerner, which is going to be part of the study, and uh, what people in the West are thinking about Lincoln. So uh, that that's going to be one of those things I'll be picking at for years to come. I figured out I'm 57. I have a few years left, and that's one I'll be working on. Mm -hmm. We are all looking forward to it. Well, thank you. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank you our listeners, for tuning in to this podcast on history with Dr. Michael S. Green. Stay up to date on all things NBN for new episodes on history, literature, and other topics of scholarly merit.